you know, that's just what happens. But with that being said, I am honored that Pastor Steve, um, I miss our pastor, I don't know about you guys, I was texting him today and telling him that, man, it, I'm coughing up stone that he's not here. Him and I text constantly and I'm trying to give him privacy with his mom. I even asked his wife, I said, do you miss your husband as much as I do? Um, so her and I are kind of going to fisticuffs about who misses who a little bit more. Um, but today's, today's message, and again, what I was saying was I'm so glad and honored that he trusts me to fulfill the pulpit or whatever this bistro table is. He trusts me with it, and I, I, I praise God for that. But uh, today's message is called Enemies of the Heart, Complacency, and Pastor Steve has been doing a Wednesday night series called Enemies of the Heart, and I'm sitting in the back one Wednesday evening, and he's going through the message, and he had already asked me two weeks prior to fill in today. So, so you start praying, right? I know some people, when they start praying for sermons, it comes to them quickly. And, there's, and I've known people, it takes months of them praying before they get a sermon or a sermon series. But the Lord downloaded me on that night and said, I want, to talk, I want you to talk to the church about complacency. And I was like, wow, what a fancy word. But when you look throughout the churches, particularly in the United States of America, complacency is a huge issue. Now, I wrote a book. It took me about, and it's a, it's a short book, but it took me about four years to write it. It goes to tell you that I'm not that good of a writer, Okay. But the, everything in that book is everything that my wife and I went through as, as kids pastors, as young adults pastors, and, and as lead pastors. And we went through and we saw the lack of unity in churches. And a lot of that stems from complacency. And so we're going to read today from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And here's what it says. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is a message from the one who is the amen. This is talking about Jesus. The faithful, true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. You guys ever had a hot cup of coffee? It's delicious. Well, for those of you who drink coffee, I, I think coffee's disgusting. It is from the pits of hell. Y'all can lay hands on me a little bit later. I'd rather have a good hot cup of hot chocolate, right? You, yes, you ever have a cold, lukewarm cup of coffee? Or a lukewarm thing of hot chocolate? And you're like, oh! And you become like Elf, right? You start throwing things. How dare you? Why would you serve me something like that, right? And we start realizing that, man, our Savior does not like lukewarmness. Not at all. He says, I know all things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one of the other. But since you are lukewarm like water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Gross. He says, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold for me and gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes. So you will be able to see I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time that I can bring this word that you have given me, Heavenly Father. Lord God, sometimes these messages are not easy to give, but God, I know I can do all things because you're sending your Holy Spirit to give me strength to preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to focus a little bit on that word indifference right there. And the whole, you know, who here realizes that there's a difference between what the world says the word stands for and what the Bible says it stands for, right? So the world for, for indifference, it stands for lack of interest, right? You're like, yeah, I think that song we sing in church is, eh, it's okay. You just don't care. But the moment, man, shout to the Lord comes on, you're like, wow, that's my song. That's the song. That, that, that's the one I love right there. The second church my wife and I pastored up in Michigan, there's a, you know, we, we started incorporating a lot of the newer songs like we're doing here, right? And there was this one man, he would get up, he, would, he hated the new song. They're of the devil. He'd sit there, and all of a sudden, a song he likes comes on, and it was, oh, thank you, Jesus. The floodgates of heaven are going to open because we're singing Amazing Grace, right? 
And here's my response to people who are like that. Stop worshiping the song, but worship the one the song's about. Now, I'm not saying we're going to sing Skillet up on stage. It's up to Pastor Brad and Pastor Steve. I'm not saying we're going to be doing those things, right? And for those of you who don't know, Skillet is a heavy metal Christian band. Okay, praise God, right? So for those young people who are like, yes, that's, that's the kind of music that we like, right? But what I am saying is that we get so indifferent about music, right, and things are going on in the church that we start losing sight of what we need to be doing, and that's reaching the lost for Jesus Christ. Now, but see, the biblical term for indifference is complacency, which requires you, right, a requirement for you to be complacent is means you are critical of positive change. Positive change. Now, don't get me wrong. You'll see in churches where there's all kinds of negative change, at least what they perceive is going on. Pastor Steve brought it up a couple Sundays ago about a church. I think it was in either Oklahoma or Texas. And they were affiliated with the Sundays of God. And I remember when this happened because Pastor Steve and I were texting about it. My wife and I were in Michigan pastoring, and he was here. And it was a Sundays of God pastor who stood up and said that we are going we're gonna to accept um, homosexuality for what it is, that, that, that we're going to go against Scripture, and they can start participating and being ordained. And, and, and actually, our bylaws you know, with these Sundays of God states that they got to be pulled. You know, the, his, that pastor's membership's pulled, his credentials are pull, pulled, and the church no longer is going to have the safety net of the Assemblies of God. This is what happens when churches become complacent. They don't uh, preach the unashamed word of God. This is what the, you know, Paul warns us when we read in scripture. He says that in the end times, you will see people who are looking for somebody who's going to tickle their ears. That is not me. I'm not going to tickle your ears. If I'm going to do anything, it's going to hurt because I shout a lot. And what's funny is I look at that scripture, and I'm like, man, that is happening in the world. We see children who are disobedient to parents, right? We see people becoming lovers of themselves over lovers of people, and then you realize Paul's talking to the church. Ouch! <gasps> you mean it's wrong for me to want to put so much money into savings instead of helping out this poor woman who's living on the street with her children? Right? That's what the church is supposed to be doing. I got invited to preach at a church in Michigan, and one of the things that this church was doing is they had a deep passion to reach the lost of people who were poor and needy. They, had a, they had a passion for it. And so getting ready, they had like eight baskets lined up. And it, had, it had shampoo in it. It had laundry detergent. It had towels and stuff in it. And for these families who were going to be either living on the street or in some sort of homeless shelter. And my sermon opened up like this. I'm like, how dare you be the church that God's called you to be? That's exactly what we should be doing, we should be so focused on winning the loss at any cost that anything else becomes not even secondary but doesn't exist whatsoever. Complacency is a silent killer in the church. Period. We only want to do it this way. But that way is no longer working. So I always look at it this way. It's like, you know, so my wife and I, we travel a lot. We go up to Tennessee to visit my dad. I will not drive to Michigan anymore. That's too much driving, Right? My poor wife's got to deal with the kids in the back, and they're throwing things. I'm like, no, thank you, Jesus. I'm not doing it anymore, right? When we used to take those long trips, I would always drive in the middle of the night, and if it was time for me to pull over, and if I saw a shell station that looked like it was run down, right, and the gas price may be five cents cheaper than the Speedway gas stations over here, but it's run down, and the Speedway gas station over here looks great. The lights are bright. It's, it's very welcoming. Where do you think I'm going to go get gas? I'm going to go to that Speedway. Right? Forget the cheap gas because you guys are completely missing point. I'm going to go to the Speedway gas station where it feels more welcoming, where I feel like my family is going to be safe. Why would we not adapt the same mindset when it comes to the church in America? In today's opening scripture, we see a church that got caught in complacency. In fact, Jesus flat out told them that he detests lukewarmness and he's going to spit or vomit them out of his mouth. Who here likes throwing up? 
We need to lay hands on you later. I remember when Katie was pregnant with the twins and she would throw up. One of the first times she threw up. She came out of the bathroom. She goes, that means the twins are healthy. I thought it was so weird. Because when I throw up, it's, I'm on the ground. I'm withering in pain. I'm like, honey, come take care of me. Anybody in the right mind does not like throwing up. And we see this with Jesus. He says, hey, you become so complacent. You become so lukewarm that I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That should be eye-opening to us, church. It is time for change. He's desperate for this church to repent and turn from their ways and return to the first love, Jesus Christ. See, complacency makes us lose interest in the things of God. You know, what are the things of God? Winning souls for Jesus Christ. Some of us are called to preach. Some of us are called to play the piano. One of the greatest things I've ever heard about a, about a woman who served her church for 30 years, every Sunday, she planned her vacations around her, making sure on Sunday she was there by 8 a.m. to make coffee for her pastors and parishioners. Could you imagine that? That's faith. That's faithfulness, right? And we have people who get so mad. I don't like that we have to do a finger uh, thing for us to check our children out. You should be happy that we want to keep your children safe. You should be happy about that because our children are not just the future of the church. They are now the church. And, the, and Proverbs 22, 6 says, if we train our children in the way they should grow, when they're old, they will not depart from it. And see, a lot of people are like, is that just a scripture? <laughs> yeah, but is that a promise? I believe it's a promise. Or God would not have Solomon write that. He wouldn't have him write it at all. But he wrote it. Our children are important. Our children need to know that Jesus died on the cross for them. I keep hearing more and more stories of, of teenagers to young adults who don't know that Jesus died on the cross for them here in the United States of America. And that is depressing to me. Why do they don't know? They just know that some dude named Jesus was born and we celebrate him on Christmas Day. They don't know about his saving power. They don't know about testimonies of my wife who was healed at this altar two weeks ago. We are so afraid to share of what Jesus is doing in our lives. Galatians 6, 9 actually says this. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap. If we don't give up. That requires us to move forward, church. We move forward. Whatever we need to do. You want to know who is the biggest source of change in scripture? Jesus who should have been his best friends were the Pharisees. So when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, the Pharisees come against him immediately. They refuse to say that Jesus was the Messiah. They're trying to come up with any excuse to say that he's not the one because he was doing things different. Over here, the law of Moses says this, but Jesus says, oh, we're going to do things a little bit different now, right? Over here, it says an eye for an eye, right? And Jesus says, no, you're going to love those who persecute you, right? So Jesus keeps continuing to bring change, and the Pharisees were so mad at him, they put him on a cross, Praise God, he rose again in three days. Want to know why the churches overseas are booming and thriving, but they're not here in America? In fact, I just read a stat yesterday that 80% of the churches in America are declining because churches aren't willing to move forward. They've become so complacent. The first church that my wife and I were lead pastors at, uh, it, it's an older congregation at the time when we, when we first got there. The average age is about 67. And here we come, I'm, I'm uh, I can't remember, how old was I, babe? My wife's not even paying attention to my sermon. Wow. Woo! So I think I was around 32, 33, something like that. And um, so we were by far the youngest, youngest people in the church. And within, in, in like six months to eight months, all of a sudden we were booming with young people. And because we were making some changes that the Lord wanted us to. But the church had become so complacent in how they wanted to do things. And it actually became a source of strife between 
the, 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 the leadership of the church and Katie and I. And I remember there was uh, one service where we sang this song called Cornerstone. It actually is a hymnal, but they, uh, Hillsong redid the song to make it more upbeat. And I think they combined it with another song. It's very powerful. And that song actually got my wife and I through uh, some tough times. That me personally through depression and things like of that nature really helped us. So we wanted to really introduce the song to them. And, and, and I remember we did that song. And man, I came up and I called an altar call. And there was about 120 people in church. And 90 of them were at the altar. My voice was shot at the end because I was praying for everybody. Just seeing the change that was taking place in people's hearts, complacency was being broke, but there were still people who were fighting it. And one of them was somebody who's not even leadership in the church came to me and says, Pastor, why don't we do more hymnals? And I said, Well, I'm not opposed to hymnals. I want you to know that I grew up on the hymnals. My dad was in some of these got pastors, so and my dad to this day is very pro-hymnals. And so I'm not opposed to them. I said, but praise and worship's moving forward. The Bible actually says, sing unto the Lord a new song. For those of you who are stuck on, we should only sing hymnals, it's unbiblical for us to just stick to one style of song. Again, worship the one the song's about, not the song. We worship King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I told her all this, right? And then the next, the next week, I actually asked our praise and worship leader, hey, can you sing that hymnal, uh, It Is Well With My Soul? It goes well with the, with the sermon that I'm doing. We had another amazing altar call. And at the end of service, here comes this woman who is literally, and this is no exaggeration. I know I exaggerate a lot and I make you laugh, but this is no exaggeration how this happened. She's in her late 60s. She comes running at, to me, Pastor! And she's in a dress. She's in a dress, church. Pastor, did you see that? Did you see the presence of God? Like, she's overreacting like this. And this is no joke. She's like, we should only do and I looked at her and I said, I, can't, I honestly don't remember her name. I said, you know what? The Bible says to sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord a new song. Paul actually admonishes us to do these things. We get so caught in complacency, so caught in it, that it starts becoming our normal mindset. But when we follow Jesus Christ with everything in us, we don't ever change the word of God. This never changes. The Bible says that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When you start changing the word of God, you're going into your own route. Guess where you're going to get the curses of scripture. And the Bible's very clear on that as well. Do not let complacency overtake you. But what, but what we do need to change is how it's presented. So we got some, some older folks in the church, you know, probably remember those uh, old, um, what are they called, uh, projectors. We had to put, the, you know, the slip of paper on it or whatever it was, the plastic thing. I remember when my dad did that, the church threw a fit. That's not the way that you present music. They got complacent. They get a complacent heart. Why are we not willing to move forward to win souls for Jesus Christ? We focus more on things that we want than what God wants us to do. We allow our deceitful hearts and desires for other things to come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. That means that you can actually preach the word of God and people will not be changed because we're so stuck on things of man than on things of God. Truth is to believe that Jesus died in our place and also offers that for everybody else and we shrug our shoulders like it's no big deal is a sign of rebellion. In fact, what does the Bible say about rebellion? Let me tell you what it says from the book of Proverbs chapter 17 verse 11. It says this, an evil person seeks only rebellion. Ooh, ooh, that should make your heart jump. Ooh, you're to tell me that, and the Bible tells us that rebellion is the same as witchcraft. The book of Revelation says that those who, who practice witchcraft are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Let me give you Pastor John's translation. You ain't going to heaven. It's time for us to put our complacent hearts aside 
and say, God, what can I do differently to win the lost for you? Complacency makes us lower our morals and our behavior. We actually know this based on King David. Now, King David was a man after God's own heart. He was chosen. He was anointed. David's in heaven. He's one of, he's one of the heroes of the Old Testament, right? But even he fell. And 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 4 says, late one afternoon after his midday rest, who here loves naps? I regret fighting naps as a child. But on Sunday afternoons, it is preordained as such for me to take a nap. Y'all need to talk to my wife about that. Thank you. David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. David allowed himself to be complacent, allowed the sin to come in and corrupt his life. And there was a consequence to this. Bathsheba got pregnant, and Samuel came to him and warned him, hey, because of your sin, you're going to lose that child. Not only did he commit adultery, but he's also guilty of murder and a slew of other things. But even in all the sin, God still showed him grace, love, and mercy because David said, I will see my child again one day. Praise God that even when we fail, we've got a God who loves us unconditionally. And see, his love is unconditional. His blessings are conditional. His blessings are conditional. It's, it's, you know, it doesn't matter how else you look at scripture. If you want to be blessed, you have to be obedient. Period. Complacently causes you to get comfortable. Now I got a chair at home. <sighs> Let me demonstrate to you what I do on Sunday afternoons. Sunday mornings at the path where I'm on staff at, I preach there every Sunday morning. And then I come here to church and there's times I fill in for kids church for Kennedy. I get in my chair and I get comfortable and I'm out. My kids tell me I snore. And I try to explain to them that it's, it's their mom snoring, it's not me. I don't want them to feel like, you know, hey, dad's not cool because dad's awesome. And mom's awesome no matter what she does, right? Praise God. And I almost lost my microphone. You almost saw that there. I'm talking about a different kind of comfortability. I'm talking about the comfortability where we're not willing to accept change because we are so stuck in the way of doing things that we're not willing to adapt. James chapter 1 verse 22 says this, but be doers of the word, not just hearers only, because that deceives you. So we need to do what the word says, and we need to hear it. See, too often the people in the church in America come to church, they hear it, but then they don't do it. They don't put their faith into action. We're going to talk about they hear it in a few minutes. They're so focused on what they, we need to do. They come in, they sit at the pew, they go through the motions, they sit in the same pew every single week, they put their country club fee into the tithes and offering plate, and then they go back to the normal lifestyle without seeing any fruitful change whatsoever. Let me let you in a little secret. Here's why people don't want to do that. Because they're comfortable and change hurts. Change is painful. It really is. My wife's a registered nurse and she's talked about patients where she's had to change their dressings. And how painful that can be to them. Pruning in itself, which I've gone through here in the last couple of years, pruning is painful. But it is absolutely worth it when you get to the end of that and realize that there was a purpose through that pain. And Jesus is the one who guides us through that. Praise God. Our pastor brought it up this past Sunday, right? We're talking about temptation. And there's this outright lie that is spread that says God doesn't allow more than you can handle. That's a lie. Scripture says he doesn't allow more temptation than you can handle. God allows more than you can handle. Want to know why? Because he's so desperate for you to reach to him. He wants that deep relationship with you. 
Paul's another one who adopted change, and Paul had to go through a lot of pain. He had that uh, road to Damascus uh, thing with Jesus, right? Paul would have never changed if he did not have an encounter with Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have. Wouldn't have happened at all. He, yeah, he was blind for a few days, right? But you know what's great about the gospel of Jesus Christ? When Paul left this earth, the ones that he martyred, the ones that he killed, greeted him in heaven. They weren't jealous. They weren't mad at him. They welcomed Paul into heaven. And Paul heard the words that all of us want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. But with this tough sermon of hearing about how we become so complacent, there is good news in this. There's ways to overcome it. Number one, get out of your comfort zone. When you look in scripture, you will see 100% of the time, God never used anybody in their comfort zone. It never happened. Right now I'm doing a study in the book of Exodus and I'm seeing where Moses, it's believed that Moses got tongue-tied. In fact, scripture says that, that he actually, um, he stuttered. Thank you. I heard somebody say, thank you for helping me out with that. He stuttered, right? He's like, Lord, I don't speak right. And you know, the Bible actually says that God got mad with him. God's probably rolling up. It's fine. I'll send your brother with you, right? But he was expecting Moses to do something that was outside of his comfort zone. When he chose the disciples, he chose fishermen. Fishermen back in those days, that was a common job, but they were known to have bad mouths, and they were known to go and whore around with prostitutes and things of that nature. But Christ still chose them anyway. He got them out of their comfort zone and made them ready. One of the most uncomfortable things I've ever had to, uh, ever had to endure as a pastor was somebody who was demon-possessed. And when you see, sometimes you see documentaries of people who confront demon-possession like it's some exciting thing. Let me let you know, demon-possession is not exciting. There's nothing exciting about it at all. If I never encounter never, another demon-possessed person again, praise God, thank you, Jesus. I realize it's part of my calling, so when I do encounter it, it is what it is. And I remember just seeing the evil in this woman's eyes, right? And then even, even, even at the path, I had somebody one time approach me who was demon-possessed and said, man of God, <laughs> you're leaving. I ain't going to deal with that, right? But this is the kind of pain that God expects us to go through for us to get out of our comfort zone. Right? Get out of your comfort zone. I'm not saying these pews aren't comfortable, but I'm saying get up out of the pew, go greet somebody you never talked to. You might be surprised how you change the world with that. Amen? Paul tells us in Romans 12, 11, never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Right? I love it when on Sundays... When we really get into worship, we see people down here at the altar. Just love it. Just seeing people so on fire for Jesus that they are willing to make themselves look goofy, according to mankind anyway, just to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. I wonder if our children would do the same thing as we do, because our kids watch everything that we do. My mom was that embarrassing mom, right? Playing soccer, and I hear my mom, let's go, John! You can do it! She was that annoying mom. Now, I love my mom. My mom and my stepdad attend church here, so they're probably listening now. Sorry, mom. I love my mom. She was just excited. How often do we get excited like that for Jesus Christ? We don't want to because we're complacent and comfortable. What are they going to think of me? Who cares? He's worthy. He's worthy of our praises. He came down from his throne and he died on the cross for my sins in my place. The least I can do is sweat down my back and worship with everything in him. Want to know why? I'm getting ready for heaven. Two weeks ago, we had heaven on earth here at this church when we had the community worship service. That's what heaven's going to look like, except we won't get tired. Praise God! I can't wait! 
I was exhausted at the end of it. I don't know if I was going to be able to drive home. But I made home, praise God. This is what happens when we don't care what the world has to say about us. If you haven't seen it yet, church, the world does not care about Christ. The world does not care at all about what the church represents. But you know who does care? Jesus himself. That's why we get out of our comfort zone and we activate our faith. So often we're, we're, we're so quick to say, oh yeah, I want people to come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, then you need to go over there and talk to them, or, or, like, out loud. I don't care how you do it, sign language doesn't matter, just tell them about Jesus. You know, my son Zach, he's 17 years old. Can't wait to see him in a couple weeks when he comes down from Michigan uh, for his visit with me. And uh, several years ago, and, and Katie and I actually raised him on our own there for, for many years. And uh, he was uh, playing basketball. And there was a boy in his team, uh, when he was like, he was like eight years old, a little boy in his team hurt his knee. And I, I'm assistant coach, and uh, the Lord told me, have Zach go pray, pray for that kid. So I told Zach, so Zach, the Lord spoke to me, he says, you need to go pray for your teammates. He's like, in front of everybody? I'm like, yeah. Just go over there, Zach. I'm not even saying that you got to, you know, get everyone's attention and have them stretch hands. Just go over there, kneel down, touch his knee, and just pray for him. This kid, his knee was swollen. And he was hurting. And he was crying like any child would. So Zach reluctantly goes over there. Praise real quick and comes running real back. But right after Zach did that, that little boy stood up, the swelling went down, he went back to playing basketball. There's something about the faith of a child. There's a reason why scripture says that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we have the faith of a child. Children, if they're willing to do it, why aren't we? Why aren't we? Far too often people use their faith as a reason to sit back and do nothing. This, of course, leads to spiritual laziness as well. But faith and working go hand in hand because James 2.7 says the faith by itself does not work. It's dead. And I once had some, a young man that I, was, that I was counseling with. He was fresh out of prison. And, and I considered it an honor to, to counsel with him. He was doing well. And all of a sudden he decided, hey, you know what, Pastor John? My first priority needs to be finding a girlfriend. I said, so you don't think you need to go find a job? Make sure you check in with probation. Get yourself a place to stay because you ain't going to live with my wife and I. I love you and all, but it's just not going to happen. And he's like, you know, faith without works is dead. I'm like, well, that's good. I'm glad you believe that scripture. But right now, God does not want you to work towards getting a girlfriend. Well, he did, and he ended up back in prison. This is what happens when we start taking scripture completely out of context. And you're thinking, well, that's a silly, silly context. Are you aware this is what's happening in America? They take one scripture, and they completely bend it all out of shape, and, they, and we can't understand why they're living contrary to the word of God. I used to be a big fan of uh, um, reality TV. And I remember there was this one, it was a, a Repo Man show, and they, they would go out and they'd repo cars, trucks, and boats. And why I watched it, I couldn't tell you, but I remember watching it as a teenager, I was like 13, 14 years old, and there was this, this woman who, she came out of her house, the Repo Man was taking her car, and she said, the Lord gave me that car, don't take it. And he says, ma'am, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. See, she had faith that God was going to pay her bills while she sat on her butt and did nothing. That's not how our God works. God expects you to go out and work. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And if you can't tell, I love to eat. I'm just going to stop right there before I move on from there. Lastly, go ahead, Pastor Brad, you can come up, get ready to lead us in a song. Number three, we need to return to Christ. We got to return back to our first love. To overcome complacency, to overcome the comfortability, to change our hearts. The book of Jeremiah says that our heart is the most evil thing. 
who can control it? There was a song back in the 80s said, listen to your heart. You know, and I can't remember how it goes before you tell them no or something like that. Anybody remember that song? Yeah, that song's completely unbiblical. It's got a good beat, and the girl can sing, don't get me wrong. But it's completely, utterly unbiblical because the Bible says that our hearts are foolish. Now, when we listen to Christ, that makes the difference. I applaud our pastor and his wife for coming in when this was originally first assembly and making change. And for those of you who've been a part of this church for many years, I'm sure that was hard. I'm sure it was. I get it. I understand it. But do you see what's happening in our church now? You know, I get up on stage with Pastor Brad, and, and I'm, I'm honored to sing next to him. And for those of you who don't know, I actually didn't go to school for preaching. I went to school for singing. I'm just answering the call of God in my life. And I look out in the balcony and out here, and there is young families everywhere. Praise God. When other churches in our county and this nation are dwindling and it's only older folks, and don't get me wrong, older folks, you have a place in church. The Bible says that you are to teach the young men how to work. The older ladies, you're to teach the younger ladies how to love their husbands and love their children. There's a place for you. There's a place for every single demographic. There's a place for every single culture at Redemption Point. So when every other church is dwindling, we have a church that is thriving and booming. Let me be honest with you, church. I could get a church and pastor it right now. And I'm not bragging. That's just how the Assemblies of God works. But my wife and children are thriving here. God is moving here. And if we're going to get out, if we're going to maintain complacency and stay in the comfort zone, guess what? God's going to say, you don't want me, then I won't come. He's not a dictator, church. He won't make us do anything we don't want to do because he loves us. But when we are willing to welcome him in, get out of our box of complacency, change happens and healings take place. It's been a long time since I've been at a church where I saw healings take place. Long time. I saw my wife get healed. I've seen Florine get healed. I love the testimony of Pastor Mike Dunn and hearing about how his son got healed when they were on staff at Inverness Church of God. You know what's funny about Pastor Mike Dunn? I was a kid's pastor there for two years and he came after me. I taught him well. I love the Dunn family, and hearing that testimony of what God did to his son's life is absolutely miraculous. Here's what Jesus says in Revelation 3, 20 through 21. He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. I'm, not, I'm knocking. If you hear my voice, open that door. I will come in. We will share a meal together as friends. I don't know about you, but I want Jesus to come in and sit with me. And I may not see him face to face, but I feel him. Got up this morning to read my Bible and I felt his presence. There's a special moment just between me and my God. He ends it this way. He says, those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat with my father in his throne. I want to sit with Jesus in his throne. And guess what? That means I get uncomfortable. I do things that God wants me to do that makes no sense. And all of us probably have a story. Those of us who've got thriving relationships with Jesus Christ, we probably all have those stories where God told us to do something and it made no sense, but we saw the fruit of it. I've asked Pastor Brad to lead us in a song. And I hope Pastor Steve's watching because he's usually done around 8.15 and 7.50 and we're almost done with church. Praise God. <laughs> I realize I got kids that need to get home. Sorry, Pastor Steve. Love you, bro. Text me later. I can't think of a better way to end 
service than to worship Jesus Christ. I mentioned the song earlier called Cornerstone. I asked Pastor Brad to lead that. It's a powerful song. It's a hymnal and an updated praise worship song in one. So for those of you who do desire hymnals, you got it. For those of you who are like me who are not a big fan of hymnals, we got it. But it doesn't matter because guess what? We're all going to stand to our feet and we're going to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Come on, just worship with us tonight. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. It's in Christ alone, in Christ alone, in cornerstone, and weak made strong, in the Savior's love. And through the storm, and He is Lord, Lord of all. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, cornerstone, and weak made strong, in the Savior's love. And through the storm, and He is Lord, Lord of all. And when darkness seems to hide His face, and I rest on His unchanging grace, in every high and stormy gale and my anchor holds within the veil and my anchor holds within the veil sing christ alone and christ alone and cornerstone and weak made strong in the Savior's love. And through the storm, and He is Lord, and Lord of all. Oh, you Christ alone, Christ alone, Worship him like you've never worshipped him before. We strong in the Savior's love through the storm. And he is Lord, Lord of all. I want to challenge all of you to be that embarrassing mom. Be that embarrassing dad. Who cares who's watching? I encourage all of us on a Wednesday evening before we go home, let's come to the altar. Let's all just worship Jesus with everything that's in us. Who cares who's watching? 
Who cares how you smell? All that I know is my God, he is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. Let's show him how much we appreciate him. Cornerstone, weak, bad, strong. In the Savior's love, all through, through the storm. Redemption Point this Sunday, because you know what? Their eternity may rely on it. Amen? Amen. 